0: So Acts chapter 28, starting at verse 17. Three days later, that's where he arrived in Rome, so three days after uh, Paul arrived in Rome, he called together the local Jewish leaders. And when they had assembled, Paul said to them, my brothers, although I have done nothing against our people, or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem, handed over to the Romans. They examined me and they wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected and so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and to talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with this chain. And they replied, Well, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear what your views are for we know that people everywhere are talking about this sect and so they arranged to meet Paul in a certain day or on a certain day and they came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying Paul witnessed to them from morning till evening explaining about the kingdom of god And from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. And they disagreed among themselves, and they began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, turn, and I would heal them. Paul continues, Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Now, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and he welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. The word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but from all the wild happenings that happen in Luke's account in Acts. There's divine visions and dreams, there's miracles and wonders, there's shipwrecks and riots, there's courtroom drama, and and there is prison breaks. And the ending of the book kind of takes a different note. It kind of almost feels like it peters out. Because we're set up for something momentous, right? Paul finally reaches Rome. It's the epicenter of the ruling empire of his day. A place of power, of prestige, a place where a massive conversion to Christianity could have ripple effects. Because, as the saying went, all roads lead to Rome. But in the the Jewish mindset of the day, Jerusalem is the epicenter of the world, not Rome. Rome is where those heathen oppressors live. That is not the center of the world. Jerusalem is. Rome, to them in Jerusalem, that's the ends of the earth. That is far from where God is. At the beginning of the book, Luke reiterates Jesus' command to his people right? Stay here until the Holy Spirit comes. And then when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Here, Luke brings this massive story to its culmination. The answering of Jesus' promise to the ends of the earth, to the very heart of Rome, and brings an end to Paul's story that has taken up so much of his narrative. Having that set up, how would you expect Luke to end the story? Maybe with kind of something like Pentecost, right? The Spirit descending with fire and wind again, a powerful sermon preached and a mass conversion of thousands happening in the heart of Rome to shake the empire. Something that looked like success. Something that looked powerful and moving. A big, massive spiritual revival. Maybe a showdown with Paul and Caesar. That could be kind of cool. But what do we get at the end of this book? We get a day-long lecture by Paul to a bunch of Jewish leaders in Rome who, being so far from the epicenter of Jerusalem and the happenings that has been going on, really have no idea about Paul or Jesus. They've heard a little bit of rumor. They're mildly curious enough to kind of ask some questions and want to hear from him. But there's no big drama or confrontation. They're not all hate and rage-filled at him for what he's doing to the Jewish faith. They come to his house and listen to a lecture. In Paul's Theology 101 course that he gives actually gets mixed reviews by his audience. We're told that some were convinced by what he said, but others simply wouldn't believe it. And then it's in response to this lukewarm reception that Paul quotes Isaiah, or the spirit speaking to Isaiah the prophet. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. Because they hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Some have interpreted this move by Paul to quote this part of Isaiah as him kind of washing his hands of unbelieving Israel. That what Luke is actually doing here with his ending is presenting one final opportunity for God's covenant people, who should have eyes to see and ears to hear, for them to believe finally in Jesus. As a Messiah. As the one they've been waiting for. And here it looks like they fail the test. So, this interpretation goes what Luke is doing here in this ending note is to say it's not about them, it is only about the Gentiles going forward, those who will listen. That is where the church is going, that is the future. I think this interpretation misses something pretty essential and key about the gospel and about the nature and scope of the church. But I think we'll have to return to that. We have to explore this just a little bit more before we can say why that feels kind of wrong. Luke's audience that he's writing to, that would have received the end of this story... It's about a generation or two after the events that he's talking about, and they were facing significant persecution for their faith. This is not a triumphant church that is feeling the Spirit powerfully work among them. It is a battered and bruised band of Jesus followers who are wondering, what happened. What happened? And they're needing a word of of hope and encouragement. And one of the heartaches that they carry, one of the, the concerns that the still young church is still trying to figure out and work out, is why some believed Jesus while others didn't. Why was the powerful teaching of the apostles enough for some, but not for others? Why were the signs and wonders so convincing to them, but left their their family unmoved? Why did so many people of the covenant, those who knew the law of Moses, had the words of the prophets memorized, who knew the promises of God in salvation history, why could they not see who Jesus is? And why were people who never heard of Moses, who never kept a single Sabbath day holy, why were they so quick to pick it up? Why were they so quick to see? Why were they so quick to hear? Some were convinced, and others simply didn't believe. The wondering that this young church wrestled with, the heartache that they carried, it ain't just back there in first century community of faith that Luke was writing to. It is a heartache and a concern and a wondering that we here in the 21st century church carry, too. Why do some believe? And others simply don't. We each here know and love someone for whom this doesn't make sense. The words of scripture ring hollow. Songs of praise do not come from their lips. Those for whom the practice of faith, of what we're doing here, following Jesus, just doesn't ring true. It doesn't resonate. It's not that they're hostile to it. It's just like, it's fine for you, but it doesn't really do anything for me. Or those who have grown up knowing the promises of God's covenant, of hearing the word of God taught and proclaimed, and who have felt the waters of baptism on their head, and then they walk away, and shrug it off, and leave it behind. Francis Spufford is a British writer and just public intellectual. And he was asked in an interview when he stopped believing in God. And the interviewer was saying, like, was it a book that you read? Was it a person in your life? What argument did it? What nudged you out of faith? And Spufford replied, I was never argued out of faith it was actually much more passive than that. It was just the usual teenage discovery that the world's a lot larger than childhood's ordering of it. I was in a church-going family, and at 13 or 14, I started caring a lot more about music and politics than I did about God. In the box of symbolism and stories I'd left behind, seemed to shrink as I moved away from it until it was impossible to imagine ever fitting inside again. It's a mystery why some believe and others don't. And it's a profound heartache for those of us who believe And love those who don't. How can it be that the deep trust that we have in Jesus Christ, the profound hope that shapes our lives and our death, resembles to someone else a box of symbolism and stories that's just too small to live in? Here at the end of Acts, we see Paul going to great lengths to persuasively teach and to witness to those he calls his brothers, those who belong to the covenant people of God, those who should be able to see Jesus and hear his voice as the Messiah and the Savior. Paul reaches out to them almost as soon as he arrives in Rome. He invites them to where he's staying, because again, he's in chains, doesn't have freedom of movement. So he invites them to come. And Paul teaches them from morning to evening, Luke tells us. Explaining about the kingdom of God, from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. He tried to persuade them about Jesus. Persuasive words of Paul, the greatest teacher of the gospel since Jesus, whose lessons and instructions in the faith in his letter after letter we still learn from today who studied under the most revered rabbinical scholar of his day, who knew scripture inside and out, who had a divine meeting with the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, his words, his teaching, weren't persuasive enough to make everyone believe. So we come back to that interpretation of how he's using Isaiah. Does Paul then quote this part of Isaiah to condemn them in their unbelief? Their hard-heartedness? Does he really wash his hands of his brothers and sisters and simply turn away from them? As some have taught and some have interpreted this ending. Does that sound like the gospel to you? The portion of Isaiah here that Paul draws on is taken from God's commissioning of Isaiah as a prophet, which means that these words are spoken not at the end of his ministry in condemnation, but at the beginning of his ministry as a prophet. And what follows after these words these words of not seeing, of not hearing, of hardened and calloused hearts are pages and pages and pages filled with promise after promise after promise prophecy after prophecy after prophecy prophecy of God's faithfulness despite the unbelief of his people. In Isaiah we find some of the most beautiful and stirring images of God's salvation that we have outside of the gospels. There's a reason why we return as as the Christian church in 21st century every advent to the prophecies of Isaiah. Isaiah gives us the suffering servant The birth of Emmanuel, a vision of a renewed creation and a restored world, of a God with us. Paul draws on the prophet Isaiah not as a word of condemnation for their unbelief, but as a word of hope. And the God He knows because of Jesus Christ, because of the promises of God, a persistent, never giving up, promise-keeping God, who again and again brings life from death, hope from despair, and belief. From calloused hearts. Far from walking away from them, far from giving up on his unbelieving brothers, Paul trusts in the gospel he teaches and proclaims. He trusts in the gospel of the God he knows. Revealed to him in Jesus. The one who is the hope of Israel still. Francis Bufford tells a story of how he stumbled upon God again in his mid-30s. He unpacks how that box of symbolism and stories that he felt was too small and no longer mattered, how when he went to pick it back up again, it was somehow larger and bigger and more mercy-filled than he remembered. And as he considered the unlikely nature of his own belief, of the absurdity of finding himself in a pew again, which he never thought he would, or the presence of God in his own life in a way that he did not think was possible. Spufford wrote, if you're a Christian, you believe that there's room even in the darkest places, even when the weight of inevitability seems total for the sudden and unpredictable An unpredicted leap toward the risk of love. To the church that wrestles with the heartache and concern of those who do not believe, Luke leaves the first century church and us now with a final image of Paul. Not fighting it out with Caesar. Not making grand conversions and going to the heart of the empire in power. But a Paul in chains. A Paul still under house arrest. No angelic prison break for him. And he's welcoming all who come to see him. Jew and Gentile. Proclaiming the kingdom of God. Teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Luke leaves us with this image of Paul whose very life witnesses, draws our attention to the mercy and the grace of the gospel he proclaims and teaches so boldly, so fully. A gospel story, he shows us, that is big enough, powerful enough, and unpredictable enough to transform an enemy of the church who hunted followers of Jesus down and killed them, who had a calloused heart, who did not have eyes to see, who did not have ears to hear, and turned him into a follower of Jesus, a teacher of the gospel. He. Once hated and wanted to stamp out. It is not the image or end of the story that we would have written or contemplated. It is odd and a little unsettling and a little unpredictable. But it's gospel. May we believe the good gospel story that we not only teach, but also proclaim. May we remember and believe that even in the darkest places, there is room for the sudden, the unpredictable and unpredicted leap toward love. A hope and a promise made possible not by the persuasiveness of our words, but by the persistent and cruciform love of Jesus, who never gives up, who never gives up, who never gives up, who never gives up up on those he loves. Thanks be to God, thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we come to the word of God, we come to this gospel story. Some of us with heartache over those we love, who don't know you, some of us sitting here wondering if we do know you, where <laughs> we are wrestling with our own unbelief. So we hold all of this up to you, knowing that your gospel story, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is a gift that endures whether we believe or not. So I ask, Spirit, that you move among us, Opening our eyes, opening our ears, breaking open our lives to your good gospel story. In the name of Jesus, amen.